Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with a Canadian conductor who grew up in Trinidad and was educated in the United Kingdom. He's held positions in both Germany and France, as well as having a highly successful career as a guest conductor all across the world. It's a great pleasure to welcome Kwame Ryan. Kwame, it is very nice to meet you. Well, I'll say meet you. I did play for you a long time ago, but to see you and to speak with you, how are, how are you? Very well, thank you, Michael. And thanks very much for having me on. Not a problem at all. Um, regular listeners will know I always go straight to the very beginning of your life and find out how music first came into your world. I mean... Uh, I use Wikipedia and also your website to know that you were born in Canada, but then grew up in Trinidad, uh, schooled in England and a university education in England and and, uh, Switzerland. But when did music come into your life? Musical parents, musical family, how did it start? Uh, Well, absolutely no musical family members for a start. Um, I come from a family of academics. Mm-hmm. My dad uh, is a political scientist, a journalist, an author. Uh, my mom is an uh, um, English teacher, but also part-time an actress. So I did yeah. grow up in the theater. Uh, so that's definitely part of my upbringing. But music uh, came into our family home really through my parents' record collection. Yeah. They're both avid music lovers, and my mom in particular had a very large classical music um, vinyl collection, which was my play, my playground for the early <laughs> years of my musical exposure. And yeah. um, that was, you know, the, the route through which I was able to discover a lot of the music that I, I came to love later on. And were there, were there any LPs or, you know, um, cassettes or whatever you were listening to, CDs possibly, I don't know how old you are, that inspired you to take up an instrument um, in any regard? No, to be honest, um, I zeroed in at a very young age on uh, the stick waving. <laughs> <laughs> I um, So as you, as you rightly research, uh, I grew up Uh, on the island of Trinidad, but my parents went to university in Canada. Mm. And for that reason, they had a lot of friends uh, in North America. And one of the things that they did with myself and my sister in the summer holidays was to return to uh, Toronto in particular, or to Ontario in general, um, you know, to spend Christmas and summer holidays. And so it was on one of those summer holidays that uh, we went to a an open air concert at a place called Ontario Place. Um, And I saw, um, I think it was the Toronto Symphony with Ozawa. Mm. And it was the first time I had seen uh, a symphony orchestra and I was just blown away. And I reportedly, I don't really recall this, but my mom says that I leaned over and said, I wanna do what the guy in the middle is doing. (laughs) (laughs) And and I was probably six at the time. Um, and so uh, I, it wasn't really that I wanted to play an instrument, but of course, they, my mom then said, well, before you can do that, you're going to need to play an instrument. And so when we got back home from that uh, summer holiday, uh, the first thing that happened was that a, a piano was procured and, um, and I started having piano lessons. Brilliant. Um, it's funny. Uh, on a few occasions during the over 100 episodes of the podcast, 
somebody said a similar story. You know, they've seen somebody early on, either live like you, or e- even on the television. I've had, you know, I want to, I want to do that, mum, or I want to do that, dad. Um, before they've even played an instrument, which is very rare. I mean, you know, I went an awful long way. I mean, I became a professional violinist before I even thought about doing that. I wasn't interested yeah. at all. I mean, I had to because I did composition, but you know, I didn't really enjoy it until much later. So the piano becomes your thing, and you move uh, move to the UK to study at Oakham School, uh, and then on to Cambridge, where I think you read musicology. Is that right, or music? Yes, that's right. I mean, there was um, something important in between, which was okay. that you, you say that the piano was my thing, but I would never, ever characterize the piano as my thing. The piano yeah. was a tool. The piano yes. was nothing more than a tool. And although I went, I got quite advanced as a pianist, um, you know, ended up, you know, actually playing concertos and whatnot at school it was something that I never really enjoyed. Unfortunately, um, while I was at Oakham School, I took up uh, the double bass. I had been a violinist wow. before and was switched to the double bass when I got to England because they said, we don't need any more violinists. We need double bassists, my <laughs> yeah. friend. Don't, don't we all? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was either that You or... have no choice. <laughs> yeah. 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 I actually wanted to play cello, but I wasn't right. allowed to do that either. Right. So I learned the double bass and joined, uh, I make it sound very simple, but after a couple of years on the double bass, was accepted into the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain. And that mm. was the way that I ended up really starting to get in contact with conducting. I was allowed to conduct uh, National Youth Orchestra uh, several times while I was in it, which yeah. was a great um, privilege. And so by the time I got to Cambridge, I already was really full on uh, conducting. I saw yeah. myself as a conductor, but first study double bass, even before piano, to be honest. Yeah. Ah, so you're another bass player. Another uh, the Michael Francis, I think, is the only other bass player I've spoken to. Um, I think over the whole of the, 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 the podcast episodes, Oh, that's wonderful. I, um, I think Zubin Mainter's a double bassist as well. Yeah, but sadly he said no when I asked him, so he's not on the list. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, Michael. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. You know, uh, uh, over the course of the next few episodes, maybe I'll, I'll start outing a few more people who said no over the, over the last two years. Um, but I, 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 that's inter- interesting about the, the National Youth Orchestra because, I mean, much later on we'll come back to it because you've since gone on, gone back and conducted them on, uh, on, on occasion. Um who was conducting when you were in the National Youth Orchestra? Because these are such important days. Again, we'll come back, back to youth orchestras later on. Your first encounter with a, a pro conductor, somebody, you know, a big name who comes in maybe halfway through the course, somebody else has done the donkey work for them beforehand, yeah. and then in they come. So who conducted when you were in the National Youth Orchestra? Yeah. Well, the most enduring memory I have of that sort of starstruck experience was actually Mark Elder, Mm. who came in to do the third act of uh, The Valkyrie with us, um, with um, Dame Gwyneth Jones and (gasps) Simon Estes, if you please. Yeah, wow, yeah. (laughs) And then a whole host of Valkyries. I mean, it was mind-blowing. Yeah. And um, he was actually really, really good to me. He, um, you know talk to me about conducting I was allowed to conduct uh, on on the course that he that he did Uh, it was a prom actually which was all the more sort of awe-inspiring and and then another course that kind of sort of stuck in my memory was one that Matthias Bammer did Um, just you know watching at my age watching somebody who's as 
technically proficient as Matthias do his thing on a really yeah. complicated program of Ives and Copeland Symphony Number no. Three, and it, it, that also kind of blew my mind. So, mm. you know, at that impressionable age to be able to actually go up to these guys and say, "I want to do what you do. Can you help me?" was just such a privilege and, and something that I have tried as a as a professional to facilitate for uh, sort of up-and-coming conductors, because I just know the power of, um, you know, being able to interface with a professional at a, at a young age. It, it can make the, the most enormous difference. You couldn't have picked two nicer people. Um, I, they both come on the podcast, and I, I, you know, I've met Mark, and um, Matthias Bamut was wonderful, uh, really, really funny raconteur, lovely stories about, about growing up and conducting. So I'm... I'm I'm not surprised that they helped you and I'm not surprised that they, they, you know, they put an arm around you and gave you some advice. I mean, I'm looking at a list of mentors that are across various places where I've done my homework. Sir Mark Elder is mentioned, but also Lynn Binstock, Peter Ertversch, who I know you won't study with quite seriously. And another name I don't know, Lothar Zagashek, if, or Zagrashek, if that's how yeah. it's pronounced. Yeah. I mean... Zagrazek. Oh, oh Zagrazek. Okay. Of, of all of those... Do you think there's one in particular that you could say, you know, was the the primary conducting teacher in your studies, um, you know, late oh, teens, with, early twenties? Without a shadow of a doubt, it was Peter Utfush. Yeah, um, yeah. I went straight out of the last year at Cambridge to the International Bartok Festival in Somerté. I was recommended to do that by Julian Anderson, who was a contemporary of mine at Keys, Cambridge. Um, yeah, for those yeah. who don't know who Julian is, he's just one of the great uh, British composers. Um, That's right. Sort of yes. Thomas, Thomas Addis's uh, generation. Yeah. And, um, and Julian, I, I was talking to Julian at, at college and I said, I want to do Bartok's um, uh, Bluebeard's Castle. Mm. Uh, I want to do it as my final concert. There was a tradition at the time in Cambridge that if you were one of the conductors of the University Music Society Orchestra, you got to do a big concert to which you could invite agents and, uh, you know, producers to come and see you work. And I wanted to do this one act opera by Bartok. And Julian said, if you want to do that, the best way to learn it is to go work with Peter Utfersch in Sombate. He's doing it this Mm. summer. And so I auditioned for, uh, for Sombate, met Peter, and he just kind of turned my um, musical world upside down because um, mm. he, he had this sort of com- composer's conductor's approach to music, which was at once the technical side of it, but also that fascination with sound mm-hmm. uh, and the different ways of generating and manipulating sound that a composer has. And he just revolutionized my ears in the two weeks that I spent working with him. And I mm. was so uh, I was so excited by that, that I wanted to continue working with him, which I then did for what would become the next six, seven years, not only in Budapest, but also in Karlsruhe in Germany. And then I, uh, I sort of became a member of his conducting institute and we stayed together um, for quite some time. I premiered some of his operas in Germany and um, he was a really sort of 
um, key personality in my musical development overall. Mm. Well, he's not come up as a name of a teacher on on this podcast. Um, it's a regular thing that if it's a name I don't know, it sounds like you've, you've alluded to the fact that he was very much into the timbres and the colours and the sounds, you know, as a composer would be. But And also technically, maybe down to the fact that, you know, he's known for conducting a lot of contemporary music, which technically you have to be really have the chops for. Um, so an overall holistic approach, he was also very good at sort of learning and assimilating a score and telling you how to do that as well. Absolutely. Um, so Peter was the one that said to me um, at this early stage when I hadn't even considered contemporary music as something I'd be interested in. I mean, I mentioned Julian Anderson oh. as one of the great um, living British composers but Julian's music wasn't on my radar at all <laughs> neither was Tom Addis's music I knew yeah. they were composing but I was really into my Puccini and my yeah. my Mozart yeah. and my my Britain you know if we wanted to come as up to date as I was at that time and then Peter said do you know you actually have a facility you have a, a technical facility that would let you that would open the door for you to contemporary music yeah, yeah. and I was like Really? And he said, yeah, absolutely. Mm. And then he sort of put his money where his mouth was. He invited me to conduct one piece at George Hurtag's 60th birthday concert in wow. Stuttgart, Germany. It was a sort of a, 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 it was a portrait concert and there were so many pieces he couldn't conduct them all. And so he said, you come to this one piece. Yeah. And I did it. And of course, musical Europe was assembled in the audience, all the agents, all the orchestra managers were coming to celebrate Kurtag. Mm, mm. And I just happened to do this one piece. And literally after the concert was over, I was sitting with orchestra managers uh, discussing dates for when I could come and uh, work with their ensembles or with their orchestras. And the next thing I knew, I was a contemporary music specialist. <laughs> well, I, I, what, what immediately springs to my mind is there that, that that sounds like you've won a competition without having to go through any of the earlier rounds, and there was it was only you in the final. That sounds wonderful. Um, it it, could it was been, definitely yeah. a slipstream. It was, yeah. it was a wormhole. <laughs> yeah. Well, to get all of those people in the room and you go out there and do do a wonderful job, and the, and then suddenly now you're filling your diary up, and I'm assuming. Would that be also when you picked up a manager or started chatting to managers? That came a couple of years later. I mean, what happened next was that um, Ensemble Recherche, um, one of the musicians from Ensemble Recherche, which is one of the great uh, German contemporary music ensembles, uh, was playing in the orchestra. Mm. Uh, and he mentioned me to the ensemble and they kind of filled my diary up yeah. uh, with appearances at all the major contemporary music festivals with them. I recorded with them. Um, I was with Ensemble Rush as the sort of core of my um, sort of early career for several years. And yeah. it ended up being about five years during which I was really exclusively conducting contemporary music, be it with um, Klangforum Wien or with Ensemble Modern, with Recherche, with uh, Orange and Fabrique. Um, there were just a lot of ensembles that became aware of me. And that sounds like um, exactly what every conductor wants, but 
<laughs> I come back to the fact that I had been into my Puccini yeah, yeah, and my yeah, Bartok yeah, yeah. and my Mozart, and I didn't see myself that way. It was yeah. a wonderful education and a, a trip to be on these big stages, you yeah. know, um, at that age. You've read my mind because my question was going to be, well, who was it then who took the plunge? Because the the first thing I, the the next bullet point of my notebook, dear listener, is 99 to 03, Kwame becomes the Gay Day or the general music director of the Freiburg Opera and the Freiburg Philharmonic Orchestra. So who was it? Was it Freiburg? Uh, but who was it who suddenly said, well, you know, I'm sure you can do contemporary music, Kwame, but why don't you come and conduct a Strauss tone poem? Or why don't you come and conduct a, you know, a Mozart piano concerto and a Brahms symphony? Who, how did you not get out of, because that sounds like you didn't want to do it, but how did you move away, start moving away from contemporary music? Well, um, what happened was, after I'd been in the contemporary music uh, drawer for a little while, <laughs> I thought, as you mentioned, I, I'm going to yeah. need an agent, because, you know, the diary's getting quite full. I'm going to need help. So I yeah. wrote to 10 uh, agencies um, and I just wrote one of those crazy letters that I understand um, artists sometimes write. Here I am. This is what I've been doing. Would you like to manage me? And of the 10, I got an answer from one. <laughs> and that one was a gentleman called Jürgen Erlebach, mm. who was a pretty big conductor agent in Hamburg, Germany. Mm, mm. Uh, he had a big roster of conductors, almost exclusively conductors, one of whom, by the way, was Lothar Zagosek. Mm. Uh, and Lothar Zagosek was at the time the general music director of the Stuttgart Opera, which was in its heyday. It was the opera house of the year, a year after year after year after year under Zagosek and his, and his uh, partner, his working partner, Zeilein. Mm. And it was Jürgen Erlebach that put Lothar Zagrasek and me together. Lothar was doing Bluebeard's Castle, here it is again, <laughs> at La Monet, which is Belgian National Opera. Yeah. And he said, I've got this new young conductor on my roster. Um, I'd like to, him to be your assistant in, Bel in Belgium, yeah. if, if you don't mind. And Lothar said, sure, send him along. And I assisted Lothar when he left after his first four performances. I did four performances. And that was kind of a big deal, you know. Yeah, and yeah. so Lothar said, okay, so you can do opera. You know what? I'm going to put you up for the general music director position in Freiburg. You won't get it. You have no chance, <laughs> but, the <ex> <laughs> but the experience will do yeah. you good. Yeah, yeah, You'll be washed in the waters. You'll, you'll yeah. walk through the fire and you'll come out, you know, better yeah. for it. Yeah, yeah. Fast forward nine months. I've done the interview. I've done the first audition. Uh, I've done the second audition, which was a completely crazy affair. Right. Listen to what the audition was. The audition, the, the final audition for this job was, you do a, a, a Friday evening performance of Verdi's Otello right. with no rehearsal. <laughs> with no yeah. rehearsal, because yeah. rehearsal is cheating. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Of course it is. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> no rehearsal. So I'd never conducted it before. I learned it for that that audition performance, and I went in the pit 
in front of a paying audience on a Friday night and conducted Verdiotello. Huh. And the next thing I knew, I was a general music director, the youngest general music director of a German opera house there had been at the time yeah, yeah. Um, at 28. And yeah, that was like a major, major shift in my life just to go from full on contemporary music with all that's associated with that professionally to being in a, in a regional, uh, albeit a large regional, but still a regional repertoire opera house in Germany. Mm. And for those of your audience that don't know what repertoire house means, it means that the house is doing one opera tonight, another opera the next night, another mm. opera the night before, and goes on like that in a cycle. So it's not for you know three weeks of the same opera where you could get some rhythm it's repertoire so just one thing after another with constant changes and that was definitely in the deep end yeah so yeah you could have monday night is uh marriage of figaro tuesday night is otello wednesday night is vozek back to marriage of figaro on thursday friday could be you know whatever a bit of light operetta um and you're expected to take you know conduct many of those as the game day um game the the phrase game day has Absolutely. appeared as it, it sort of popped up regularly well fairly regularly throughout the 100 or so episodes um and the reason why i bring it up is because of the experience of jack Stein, the dutch conductor who frankly told me in episode three he hated being a general music director in weimar um because he, he soon realised that he was going to be spending 75% of his time in meetings and 25% actually conducting. Whereas Carol Karabitz didn't seem to mind it. He had exactly the same job after Jack and others have been sort of meh about the whole thing. How did you find it? Were you embroiled in lots of meetings? Um, how did you find suddenly, you know, you're now the boss um, and you're probably having to learn two or three operas or you know all the operas that, that could are sent at you. How did you find it all? Well, I mean, you've alluded to one of the key things, which was I had to learn everything I was doing there from scratch. I was yeah. coming to, to that with literally three operas under my belt mm. um, and having to conduct three or four per season. Yeah. And because of the, you know, the reputation I had come to Freiburg with, which was that of a contemporary music spe- specialist. Yes. I was doing a contemporary opera within those three or four operas every year. Yeah. So that was really, really daunting. And I mean, you, you talk about Wozzeck one night, Marriage of Figaro the next night, Tosca the next night. But what you don't, what you haven't said yet is that what can happen is that you have a two or three week break between one, one Wozzeck and the next Wozzeck where yes. the orchestra hasn't seen it. <laughs> you yeah. haven't had the thing in your hands and you need to come back in front of a paying audience and do it like you did it yesterday. Yeah, yeah. And this was for someone who's pretty darn green. I was still in my 20s, but also someone who had been raised in Stagione, which is the other system where you play just one opera for a full run of two weeks. You do seven performances, eight performances, and then it's done. I've yeah. been musically raised that way for someone who's raised in that system this repertoire thing was quite traumatic yeah. because, I was gonna say, yeah. <laughs> it was just traumatic because yeah. I always felt like I didn't like we weren't doing um the work that we had done after the premiere 
justice a month later, having not seen the piece mm. for a long time and had other pieces interspersed and symphony concerts. And it was just a routine that I didn't have. But yeah. I tell you something, my, my erstwhile agent was right. I was, after those four years, definitely washed in all the waters and had walked through all the fire. Yeah. And there was like nothing that could phase me after that. Because, right. you know, like my second performance of Tosca, which was the opera I opened with, the tenor got sick and dropped out. And I never saw him again because he got really sick. Yeah. And I had yeah. a different Cavaradossi almost at every performance after that. So I was oh. coming to the opera house. Good evening. This is your Cavaradossi for, the, for tonight's performance, maestro. Oh, dear. I was like, how do you do? Shall we run through it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the next thing, you know, you're playing for people who are paying good money and, and dealing with it. Yeah, um, yeah. So it was, it was trying, but it was the most unbelievably good training for dealing with everything that, that musical theatre can throw at you. I mean, part of your job there was you also had to conduct the Freiburg Philharmonic Orchestra, which I'm assuming was basically the same orchestra as the opera orchestra that the two they had a, you know, a, a dual role. Um, I'm assuming also that you know your six years spent at the National Orchestra of Bordeaux Aquitaine were an awful lot easier um, than they were. You know that you were just running a symphony program, um, uh, but you were guesting, and you know you still go and do opera. Um, or, you know, your name appears when you, if I look at the places you guessed it, it's a pretty happy mixture of opera houses and, and symphony orchestras. I want to touch on guesting um, because it's something that we all have to do. I mean, I don't suppose we all have to do it. I'm sure that, you know, the people at the very top of the tree can pick and choose it, and they never have to go and conduct a new orchestra again. But, you know, the, we do need to go and guest. Do you have any strategies, any tactics any programs that you like to take as your first program, if given the choice? I mean, sometimes we're not, are we? We're just asked, would you mind coming and conducting the New World Symphony, you know, with this concerto? Now, what's guesting like for you? And that magic slash frightening moment when you put a downbeat down and you have no idea what's going to come back, or when, or what? <laughs> <laughs> all of this is very pertinent. Yeah. Um, first of all, I've been very fortunate to have uh, pretty reliably throughout my career been given the choice of what I wanted to conduct when I went to guest. That's good. Um, that it helped that I had really good agents yeah. um, who, you know, brokered those things for me. Yeah. And um, so I was always pretty comfortable with the repertoire I was conducting. Um, you're right about the question of when, mm. Uh, an orchestra is going to play yes. after the downbeat because, you know, you conduct a, a, a British orchestra and you will get playing on the downbeat, right on it. Mm. Uh, you, you conduct an orchestra maybe in, in, in Hungary or in, in Eastern Europe somewhere and you could be waiting a half a second. <laughs> <laughs> they all play beautifully together. Yes. But you have to get used to the fact that they might play a little bit later than another orchestra. And that, uh, I have to confess, as a contemporary music specialist, that's something I've never gotten used to. I mm. just, I, I like it to be um, on. Yeah. But otherwise, um, the major thing that I think has stuck with me about guesting was the difference between guesting in Europe and guesting in North America. Yeah. Uh, and, and the major thing is the amount of rehearsal you get. 
Yeah. Um, so you, European orchestra, you could expect to have, you know, anywhere between three and five rehearsals. Yes, that's right. Many that's North American yeah. orchestras, you can expect two. Mm. And, um, you know, for big symphonic program, um, two in a general. Yeah. Um, and, you know, other orchestras, you know, some London orchestras, you might even be underway with one in a general. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> and, and, I, and sometimes just a general. <laughs> just a, that's, also, <laughs> so, that's also known as well. Um, <laughs> indeed. Yeah. But, you know, as, as, as uneasy as I was with that uh, at the beginning, I found that I actually enjoyed working faster Yes. Yeah. Than I enjoyed having lots and lots of time, mm -hmm. um, simply because um, rehearsal is for me just a, a rite of passage. It's just organization and um, you know pacts and covenants and agreements and mm -hmm. uh, and I want to get through that uh, as as expeditiously I, as I can to that moment where we're actually doing something spontaneous on a stage yeah. together. And, yeah. and so I, I've really, really enjoyed guesting uh, in the US for that reason. I, I love the speed yeah. um, and the pressure. I th kind of thrive on that. I'm going to take that one step further then, because it sounds like you're like me in the fact that I love an air of spontaneity where the, where it's possible in in a program. You know, when you go out there over an evening and th and I've said to an orchestra, they've asked me, "Are you going to do that crescendo there?" Because you did a diminuendo the last time. I said, "Well, I don't know until I get there in the concert. We'll find out." You know, do you have any strategies for getting across to an orchestra in a short space of time? Hey, I'm somebody who loves spontaneity. Um, you know, uh, do you know what I mean? Because some orchestras love everything. The, the I's dotted, the T's crossed, uh, underlining here. This is exactly how we're going to turn that corner. It's going to be the same writ every single time. Other orchestras are just waiting and watching and, and going with it. Uh, do you have any strategies or any, you know, do you like to get that out there early on in the process? Well, it depends on what I'm doing. Obviously, if it's contemporary yeah. music, you're, you're dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's yeah. and yeah. You're, you're delivering everything the way that it's been prepared in the rehearsals. Yeah. Um, in, with standard repertoire, um, frankly, I tend to be pretty reliable with what I want going in and coming out. Um, but... Um, Obviously, the less rehearsal you have, the more, first of all, you need to go in to it with a, with a pretty strong idea of what you want. Yeah. And by the same token, I found that, and this is going to seem paradoxical, the stronger the idea that I have going in, the more flexible I feel yeah. when I'm actually standing there. It's like I can yeah. let go of plans more easily the clearer they are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whereas if I'm not so sure of where we're going with this, um, I find myself feeling more stressed mm. um, and perhaps less flexible as a result. It's, it's a weird kind of uh, mirror universe that um, that I exist in. And I, I'm sure that many of my colleagues uh, will, would understand that. Um, musical theater is different from symphonic. Yes, uh, conducting of course. musical yeah. theater. There are too many moving parts for you to 
to really shock people with spontaneity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it's not Absolutely. just the orchestra. There's a singer and there's someone yeah. pulling a rope on the side of the stage and yeah. someone, you know, turning on a light and yeah. changing a costume. And if they had five seconds to change it where they thought they were going to have out of 20 you're not a good person no no <laughs> no no i was definitely speaking in symphonic terms i mean just to finish on that on that topic i suppose also the thing that needs to be said is that if the rehearsal process time is squashed then the orchestra are actually going to be watching you harder than if they know they've got two or three days so therefore they're looking for cues you know the analogy i, I gave to somebody um who was not a professional soloist. I won't go into the full story because it takes too long. On it. But he was uh, he was a, a very, very able pianist and he'd given himself a year to play the Greek piano concerto for a TV documentary. And he came along as soloist and we were rehearsing it. And he kept saying to me, but the orchestra are following me so well. And I said, well, can I give you the following metaphor? This orchestra is like a racing driver behind a car and it's driving the same race course every time they get the, to the Greek piano concerto. They know where all the corners are. They just need to discover whether you're going to go around it in third gear or fourth gear. That's all. But they know that you're going to go around in third or fourth. It's, if you go around it in first, then there might be a problem. But if you, you know, they're basically, they know the, the circuit, they know the shape of the course, so they know where all the problems are. So they're listening for you. And it's, it's the same. You squash them out of rehearsal time down. They're going to be looking at you all of the time in all of the same places, aren't they, as a conductor? They're going to be look, looking at you for the writ. Are you going to do that traditional pause there? You know, how are you going to cope with those corners? Yeah, that's exactly it. And then conducting becomes, for me, what it is in its essence, which is a gestural language which translates a musical language or you know somehow manipulates a musical idiom mm. and then you don't have to speak anymore and no. I mean like that was like the bane of my early years as a, as a conductor I just had this idea um, perhaps from having been you know deeply impressed by my experience in uh, in youth orchestras I thought this idea that you had to speak as a conductor because of course <laughs> at youth orchestras conductors do talk because yeah. they have lots of young people that they need to keep entertained a professional orchestra is not looking for that and it took wow. me like a couple of years at the beginning of my career to understand that I could rely on my gestural prowess and just shut up and it would mm. be so much more fun <laughs> uh, for me and for everybody else um, so I, I really lean into that um, now um, and and it is it is much more enjoyable. But I will say that I do enjoy for the for the sort of reverse reason going to an orchestra with complicated contemporary repertoire because yes. I do enjoy being the person in the room, like the only person in the room that does know all the corners. Yeah. At the outset. Yes. Yeah. And being able to mold something from that point of view, where you're the advocate of a composer and you, you're representing a composer with a with an orchestra, that's a, a very enjoyable experience as well. well I'm going to stick with the analogy. It's an experience that has more discovery in it. You know, yes, it's a different type of discovery in it for everybody. No. I'm going to stick with the analogy and go one step further. Because let's go back, and you mentioned you remember the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain, and I know that you've conducted them, and the National Youth Orchestra of France, I believe, as well. Which means that you've now got a third role, is you've not only do you know where all the corners are, but now you've got to teach them how, the, how to go round the corners, um, which means you do have to talk a bit more. What is it about youth orchestras you enjoy? I know what I enjoy when I conduct youth orchestras, and I still do. I conduct the CBSO's own youth orchestra. But what do you enjoy about it? 
I think I, well, of course, on a somewhat selfish level, I enjoy the nostalgia of it just yeah, for I myself. Bet. I bet. You know, yeah. there's a there's a there's a closure. There's a type of closure that one gets when one's played in an orchestra like that and then stood in front of one like that as an as a professional. Mm. Um, that just feels right for me because I do enjoy teaching and communicating. But from the music making point of view, I just love the freshness that youth orchestras bring to their approach to mm. a piece. It's that, like they're not jaded. They don't know all the corners. Mm. They, they're, they're, but they're open yeah. to possibilities that might not have been, uh, that might not be conventional. Yeah. Um, and they're also willing to dig in to things that a professional orchestra might gloss over because they know, well, you know, this is how we do that. Yes. You yeah. don't need to dig into that. I remember, for example, when Mark came to NYOGB with, with uh, Valkyrie, the fire music at the end of Die Valkyrie Act Three, he rehearsed that in the most <laughs> brutal detail <laughs> but to the point but no seriously it was like every note in those quick violin passages yeah became audible and the way the chords move and this glassy precision that's on the page when you actually play it after two and a half weeks of rehearsal with you know wide-eyed teenagers who are athletic in their yeah. left hands yeah. it's it sounds incredible it's, it's it's a revelation and that kind of opportunity to reveal things in old repertoire that you think you know is the mm. gift of working with a really good youth orchestra yeah oh i agree and uh, having having once had to play the magic fire music at the end of de valkyrie one on a part because it was a reduced orchestration. Uh, I feel for those kids because that, that's one of the <laughs> hardest things I've ever had to play. Um, uh, and but, yeah, I it mean, was brutal, we, but it was but, fun. Yeah, but I mean, on a serious note, at that age, nobody said to them, "Oh, look, it's just an effect. Just get as many notes as you can." You know, they're trying their their you know collective skins, asses, balls off to try and play every single note and and do what Mark's asking about, you know, colour, tone, whatever, dynamic, balance. Um, so, yeah, I could imagine it was exciting. And whilst we're on the subject of scores, there is an 11th question, Kwame, which I haven't told you about, but every conductor has answered it because every conductor has to go through this. It's to do with marking up, marking up scores. And don't worry, it's not a frightening one. When you come to mark up a score, do you have a, a system that you like to use, you know, start to page one, work your way through, or, or flick through it and go sort of big to small? Um, do you use a piano at all? And for the real geek students, and myself in particular, are you a scribbler in of, of notation? Are you a red, blue, black colours with highlighters, or are you somebody who just doesn't use anything at all and keeps it all nice and clean? How do you go about learning a score? Well, it depends to a certain extent what kind of score it is, but my approach to score marking is something that I've kind of inherited from Peter Oetfersch yeah. um, because of the complexity of the repertoire that he introduced me to. Yes, of course. Yeah. So, um, yes, I use a lot of colours yeah. when I'm doing a contemporary score. And, in fact, I always start by marking the dynamics. So I have a colour, which is assigned to each dynamic okay and a, and a type 
So forte uh, is red, fortissimo is red, but has a different shape. Mm. Um, mezzo forte has its, its yellow. Uh, piano has its own shade of blue. Pianissimo has another shade of blue. And what I, I do this because in a contemporary score, when you can see like a heat map of dynamics yes. through the score, you have an understanding of so many things with regard to structure, with regard to shape, balance, priority, mm. um, color. You can literally see the mixtures on the page when you look at it, you know, in, in, in this sort of, um, yeah, it's like a heat map. It's like a, a radiation map uh, reveal. Yeah. So I always start with that. Um, then I look at the rhythms i go through all the everything that's time-based be it bar numbers or actual rhythms where things coincide if it's complex i actually put lines through things so i can see where they coincide you can hear the yeah. contemporary music shining through this obviously <laughs> absolutely I don't, yeah. Yeah. I don't do this for beethoven i don't no. do <laughs> this for mozart but because i've spent so much of my career doing complicated scores that's my process the dynamics then the, the everything that's time-based, um, and then really everything else. So I actually end up coming to the context for the music, the story, any history, any com compositional um, you know, peculiarities that I need to be aware of. I do that all at the end once mm. I've absorbed the score in its, in its detail, sort of sort of uh, taken it apart. And the other thing I do, which is a little peculiar, but I recently learned that I'm not the only crazy person um, who does things like this. For contemporary opera, I um, will actually do, especially if it's a world premiere or work that's never been heard before, I'll actually do a full mock-up of the score in Logic. So that ah. means I'll be using sample libraries. Yeah. I'm a big Spitfire audio fan, if, if you know what that is. I, I don't, but um, I can imagine. And basically, yeah. <laughs> so Logic is a sequencer. It's a, it's yeah. a, it's a, it's a piece of software that you can uh, assign events to in MIDI, and every event is a note. Yeah. And then you can assign that event to an instrumental sample so that that event will trigger the sound of an actual violin playing, an actual oboe playing at a certain dynamic. And literally, you create an orchestral mock-up of what yeah. it's going to sound like. Now, that sounds crazy. But what you can do once you have that mock-up, uh, and this is, by the way, the way a lot of film scores are, are right. put um, mocked up, is you can go and rehearse on your own so you can mm. go and say huh that's exactly that's actually how this mixture is going to sound i think it let me try it with some more violin or let me try it with a harder attack on the oboes and you literally program it into yeah. the computer and you hear that and you say okay that works but it needs to be faster than the composer's written so let me try it five metronome marks faster and then the computer will play it for you and and then i go and i sing all the vocal parts over the top yeah. So I sing all the parts. So I've got what ends up being a, like a CD production of myself performing the whole opera. Uh, so that when you, by the time I get to the first rehearsal, I've played every part in the orchestra. I've sung every part on stage. And I 
And as I said before, it allows me with that detailed knowledge to let go of all of that and say, okay, mm. now tabula rasa, what are the artists that I'm working with interested in doing with this? Yeah. Um, but I always have in the background a version of it that I know will work and I can let it go. Yeah. Or I can say, here's what I tried. Here's what I've done in the lab. Let's try this. Yeah. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But having something super specific like that is for contemporary opera really useful. And against everything that I, every instinct that I've ever had, I've found that singers actually appreciate having a, a real close look into what the composer, the conductor has imagined yeah. a month before they get to the rehearsal. I bet, yeah. And I can also imagine the composer being very happy because you're almost, well, you are proofreading everything as you're inputting it into Logic and, and Spitfire and, oh, yeah. you know, all the wrong notes you that ha are going to appear in however long a contemporary opera is, you're going to find them. Uh, and, and yeah, or there's going to be moments when you can ring up or email the composer and say, do you mean, really mean this? And they can say, yes, I do, actually. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Now, that, and, and, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that sounds... Or do you... Do you I, I see that you wrote pizzicato. Can we try it spiccato? Because yeah. here's how it sounds. Yes. And, you know, it's like, wow, that actually sounds pretty cool. Yeah, let's do spiccato. And so it becomes this collaborative thing that you yeah. can share in a lab, in an audible laboratory scenario that happens like weeks and months before anybody gets to a rehearsal room and wastes a musician's time yes. actually doing that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's brilliant. I had, do not have the technical chops to do that. And I, I doff my cap in your general direction for doing it. But I think for contemporary music, especially opera, I think that's a, that's a wonderful thing. If you, you know, to do, be able to do that and then you arrive ready, I think that's great. Are you fascinated by conductors and conducting? And would you like to learn a lot more about what we do and how we do it? Well, you can find out all sorts of secrets, tips, opinions and much more on my Patreon page. You can hear over 17 hours of interviews with musicians, composers, soloists and managers and hear their thoughts on conducting and conductors. You can listen to 17 bonus mini-episodes that accompany this podcast. You can read articles I've written on conducting and conductors, and you can even have conducting lessons from myself. All of this is available at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium, and from just £5 a month, which is less than a pint of beer in most cities across the world, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now... The all-important 10 questions with my guest, Kwame Ryan. Kwame, it's that time um, when we must traverse the 10 questions. And I always start with, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I really enjoy um, the sound of any moving vehicle, be it a car, a bus, a plane, or even a starship. If I'm watching <laughs> Star Trek or Star Wars, yeah. I love that hum. Yeah. <laughs> um, I find it very comforting. Um, what sound do I hate? I detest the sound. I can hardly even say the words. I detest the sound of fingernails on a chalkboard. 
Mm, yeah, it's th- that one or a, a knife or a fork scraping across a porcelain plate oh, is another one. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, <laughs> that worked, dear listener. I wish you could see Kwame's face, but it worked. <laughs> we know he doesn't. We know he wasn't making that up. There we go. <laughs> no. <laughs> if you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? I would spend half of it walking or riding my bike in the forest mm. and half of it watching rugby. Oh, rugby union. Rugby union. I used to play it as a boy at school and have never, uh, it's never let me go uh, as a pastime. Love it. I used to enjoy playing it as a schoolboy until my, fi- my fingers on my left hand basically got too precious by playing the violin and so I had to give it up and... I stuck to cricket instead, and look where that got me. Broken fingers and a broken jaw, so that didn't work either. <laughs> oh, dear. I gave it up because I got knocked out, uh, actually, on a, during a rugby match and ended up in hospital and uh, never played again after that. Uh, but, yeah, wonderful to watch. Now, I wonder whether your favourite conductor of yesteryear will also be wonderful to watch. Uh, have you got one, or have you got more than one? I think I only really have one conductor um, of, you know, yesteryear in the sense that they're not alive anymore that I uh, feel strongly about or follow in some way from a point of view of principle. And that's actually Arturo Toscanini. Mm. Um, I I love his sort of clear cut, uh, no nonsense approach to standard repertoire and his notion of fidelity to score mm-hmm. is something that I sort of uh, was schooled in I guess as a contemporary music specialist originally um, I apply that same principle to anything that I'm conducting I'm uh, always feeling like I'm the advocate of a of a of a composer who's living sort of vicariously through my performance of their work so I I really hold Toscanini for his fidelity to to score high for that and there's such rhythm and drive and um I mean it's funny his name has not come up regularly I mean you know Carlos Kleiber comes up every but once every two or three episodes but um Toscanini's not that regular a feature as the answer to this question and I wonder why um I wonder whether it's a sound that some people don't like or I don't know um but yeah I, I really enjoy watching those Toscanini, you know, something like Force to Destiny, it's just got such drive and such panache. About exactly it. that. That was yeah. the first Toscanini uh, that I saw. It was yeah. La Forza del Destino, and yeah. it, it blew me away. I totally agree with you. Yeah. Well, I wonder whether your favorite current conductor or conductors also blow you away. Some people find this question difficult to answer, some don't find it difficult at all. Uh, I wonder what which camp you'll be in, Kwame. Well, you know, similar to my answer to the conductor, favorite conductor of yesteryear, um, I'm not sort of a fan of any conductor for any particular performance, but I tend to approach this from a um, from a philosophy of conducting. Yeah. And yeah. my current favorite is Rene Jacobs, mm. and I I'm, I love Rene. I guess because he brings such originality to his readings of yeah. pieces that you think you know and 
it's a, a freedom that he allows himself that is underpinned with unbelievable research and study and understanding of context um, and back uh, sort of history of the work he's doing um, and the surprises that that allows him to plate up for the audience's ears, uh, I find just delightful um, time and time again. Well, it's a choice I've not heard before, but it's a choice I really agree with. Um, as you can imagine, there have been so many different choices over the over the episodes, but I'm sure René Jacobs has not appeared, and he should have done before now, so bravo you for choosing him. Thank you. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? Well, um, obviously, with a background in contemporary music, I've had my share <laughs> I of, bet you have, yeah. <laughs> of athletic challenges. <laughs> when you're conducting a telephone number on every page. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Exactly. I mean, I think probably the hardest technical challenge I've ever had in the theatre was uh, Matthias Pincher's first opera, L'Espace Dernier, which I did the world premiere of at the Bastille. Um, it was written for three orchestras. <laughs> and <laughs> when we went into it, I thought it was going to be a situation. And of course, two of the orchestras are in the pit and one of them is on the stage. Yeah. And we thought, okay, this will work with monitors. And uh, it ended up not being possible. And so the guy who was my assistant at the time uh, ended up conducting the third orchestra on the stage connected via uh, cameras and monitors to me. Yeah. Um, he ended up having a really good career, a guy called Alejo Perez, who you may have actually interviewed um, from a South American conductor. I think he may be Chilean. Anyway, that was an adventure. Let's yeah, put it that I way. bet. I bet. Um, emotionally, I think the hardest piece that I've done may have been the Matthew Passion mm. just because Bach like a number of other German composers stirs me emotionally um, mm. and I haven't really put my finger on why but I, I've had the experience of being in floods of tears at the end of the Matthew Passion more times than I'd like to, to, to admit to. Um, that is, of course, a wonderful experience to, have to bear your soul like that, but it, um, it's, it can be a little bit uh, challenging to be so emotional on the podium yes. when yeah. you've got, you know, conducting business to do. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, definitely, I'd say that's up there with the emotional challenges of conducting. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Well, from a purely practical point of view, I absolutely must have uh, contact lenses with me. Um, ah. The reason being that I am a sweater. <laughs> okay, yeah. you're speaking to another <laughs> Which one. Which means... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have tried to yeah. hold it in. I have tried. I, I, I'm just apparently incapable of uh, moving my arms without my sweat glands uh, moving in sync. And um, so I end up, you know, 
pretty wet mm. when I'm conducting, not so much rehearsals as performances, which means that I'm incapable of wearing glasses to perform. It's yeah. just not possible. Mm. So I, know I have to have a set of contacts in my eyes and a spare set of contacts um, nearby if it's an opera and probably another set up in my dressing room just in case because contacts are so, so key to being able to see anything in, mm. in the pit. Mm. For, for, you know, light bending purposes, but also for uh, sweat purposes. Yeah. See, now, I mean, the sweating is an important thing. You know, I mean, my eyes are getting worse and worse at the, at the age of 51. My arms are suddenly not long enough to hold the piece of paper away or the score. You know, I, I've had a few recently where I've asked an orchestra to go from a bar number we haven't even got to yet because I've read the bar number wrong. Um, and, you know, I, I, it is... I remember playing when I wore glasses to play the violin. I remember, you know, sweat running down the front. There's, there's nothing worse when you're playing. When you're conducting, you, you need your vision perfect. So a wonderful answer. And again, I don't think yeah. I've had that answer before. So, yeah, brilliant. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? If you allow me, I will tell you what I would change about becoming a conductor rather than being a conductor. Of course, um, yeah, yeah. I wish, uh, and I'd hope that I'll be able to do my part to make this so, that young conductors were not uh, dumped in the deep end of conducting before they understood what was actually uh, required of them in the role of conductor. Mm. Um, you demonstrate some technical prowess, you demonstrate good ears, and many people will tell you, oh, you should be a conductor. Uh, and then you start doing it. And while you're doing it under high pressure, if you have the fortune to be successful early on, while you're doing it, you realize, oh, this is not, this is mostly not about having good technique and having good ears. There's so much more that goes into this, mm. starting with, understanding people mm. and you know understanding um how you go through the thoughts beliefs desires of another artist mm. or another a group of artists to get to a common result that's something that and certainly in my experience was never spoken about in a conducting class mm. um You'd, you'd be told, if you beat like this, you'll get this. Uh, you do an upbeat like this, you'll get this result. But the psychology of conducting, the sort of dark or even light art, you know, the bright yes. art of psychology that goes through uh, being in, a, in a, a community of artists for a time with people and getting to a common result uh, as a community, that's hardly ever spoken about. Mm. So I wish that becoming a conductor was something that young conductors were led into in a, in a, in a more thorough fashion um, that, that deals with more than just technique and, and oral skills. I think in the current world, the best way to achieve that is to become an assistant for two years somewhere and to learn it from watching not only the music director of an orchestra, but watching each guest that comes in each for each project. And that can be a Friday night, light music, you know, West End and Broadway music songs 
and it's a different conductor to somebody who does a family concert on a Sunday, to somebody who's then in for four days doing, you know, mile of four, to the, their music director, and having seeing different people's approaches. And then in the in the in between all of that, you go and stand in a coffee queue and you discover why that conductor has just suddenly put the backs up of the orchestra. And it could be over one sentence. And I think that's the only way that at the moment that a conductor can gain all of that without having having been a professional player like myself. Because I do worry, and it's come up on the podcast before about people who win competitions and then suddenly they've won a competition. A lot of it must be based on their stick technique, but then they get 30 engagements with 30 different orchestras around the world they've got to do in the next five years, and they're thrusting put through onto these people. And I don't care how many times people say um, or say to them, you know, you're not a conductor yet. By winning that competition, they must think, well, I am, I am to a degree, and now I've got an agent, and now I've got 30 gigs, and now I'm doing this. And it, yeah, and that's, that's going to be a harsh learning curve unless you're very careful. So... The best way is to be become an assistant and take the slow train. You know, learn learn as much as you can from the people who've been doing playing in orchestras and doing it for years. I mean, I agree with you. I think it's it's so important. Yeah, because you can you can be a whiz kid all you true. like, but if you if the next thing that comes out of your mouth after you stop is something an orchestra is going to take umbrage to or, or find upsetting, you ain't going to get any more work, are you? Um, yeah, it's. Exactly that. And of course, continuing to work, if you've bypassed the slow, the slow route, which you're talking about, is the only way to keep learning. So if you are, if it's aborted, because you don't know what to say, when you put the stick down, or you don't know not to say anything, when you put the stick down, uh, then, you know, a promising career can can really be interrupted. So yes, I agree with you about the slow route. It's also true that the, the the sort of births to take that route are few and, and far between. Yes, yes they are. Um, yeah. And so I would like to see, and again, I, I, I'm trying to contribute to this when I uh, get invited to teach conducting classes um, or do master classes, I'd like to see this become a, a more fundamental part of a conductor's training so that it's at least being broached mm. um, while you know stick technique and oral skills are also being drilled mm. it's funny because having spoken to marion Olsop and also alice farnham both of which are involved in female conducting uh, in particular and they they both talked to me about the language that they use and also body language that they use being slightly different or needing to be slightly different to a male conductor but nobody talks about it for male conductors, very, very, very rarely indeed. When I've dealt with some students at the conservatory, occasionally I'll stop them and say, please don't use those words, try this vocabulary, or try that, you know, so, some other way of spinning the words around to make it positive, you know. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's it's funny, isn't it? Um, uh, that It's just not taught, that the psychology, yeah. uh, the, the use of language, um, even and things like that. Humor, even things like rehearsal orders. You know, I was chatting to some people with the London Philharmonic yesterday. I was working with them and we were talking about, you know, conductors who come in and the rehearsal order. I said, well, the most important thing is try not to upset anybody because you don't know whether they're the chairman of the board. You know, <laughs> they're going to be deciding whether you're going to go back or not. You know, if you suddenly decided yeah. to, you know, that, that um, the piccolo player is going to play at 10.15 for five minutes and then see you at four o'clock just before the end, that could be the end of your relationship with that orchestra. So, yeah, there's so many things aren't taught uh really good answer yeah. thank you um number nine 
is another real or fantasy question, Kwame, and it is, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? What a good question. Well, um, one of the things that I've done, and, you know, I've tried a lot of things in my life. Um, I actually have a a podcast, the first episode of which um, is called Curiosity Stream, and it talks about the fact that I've allowed curiosity to drive... Uh, through my life and uh, sort of wash me up on on a variety of of different shores. Um, And one of the things that I trained to do uh, alongside being a conductor was actually um, being an Ayurveda consultant. Mm. So um, there was a point in my career where I was very um, active. I was very busy and feeling the stress of a, a busy conducting life. And, and so t- you know, sort of typical me, instead of just taking yoga classes, I became a yoga teacher. Mm. And uh, I was sort of bitten by the bug of that. And so instead of, you know, taking an Ayurveda class, I trained to become an Ayurveda consultant and, and actually did it. And, um, but these are things that I've learned and only used for myself Mm. and one of the things that i'd like to do uh moving forward uh would be to share the benefit that i've gained out of yoga and ayurveda as a performing artist um as a as a conductor in particular but more generally as a performing artist because i think that it could help a lot more people um than one might imagine Mm. Um, for the simple reason that it's, it's based on your constitution. It takes account of how you're made up physically and psychologically and then makes recommendations in a sort of scientific fashion for how you can live your life and do your work uh, more happily and more healthily. That's brilliant. Fascinating. Um, I am going to do what I really ought to do with another podcaster is I'll make sure, dear listener, that... Uh, the link to Kwame's podcast is in the show notes below, and then you can go across and and hear about um, uh, your your curiosities. You said it. In, was that is that episode one, or is it, or is the whole podcast yes. about that? It starts there and goes on. No, the whole directions. podcast is. It does. The whole yeah. podcast is called Eight Minute Idea, mm. um, because you know I can get really intensely engrossed in a subject matter, but it, once I've talked about it for eight minutes, I'm pretty much done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I call it eight minute idea and it then doesn't demand too much of the listener. So each yeah. episode is not much longer than eight minutes or even under eight minutes. And the first one's called curiosity stream and gives the sort of starting point for this exploration of a whole myriad of other topics that I go into on the podcast. Well, it'll be in the show notes below, dear listener, and I shall be tuning in myself. So there we go. And finally, Kwame, if the world was to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Okay, I I like this question because I love to eat. Um, (laughs) So... (laughs) Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Part of my my studies to become a yoga teacher and to become an Ayurveda consultant have involved giving up meat. I did it uh, voluntarily. I did it really for sort of, um, for the love of animals, really. I just love animals, like alive animals. And so I became a vegetarian and then I became a vegan. um, And then I found that I 
couldn't actually do without cheese in life. So I <laughs> gave up veganism, came back to vegetarianism. Uh, and I've been a vegetarian for a, a decade and more. Yeah. But one of the things that has not let me go is the taste of a burger. Yes. So if, if the world were ending, I... I'm happy to say that the discovery of the Beyond Meat Burger has kind of revolutionized my life. It's allowed me to have a burger and fries yeah. with mayonnaise and a lactose-free milkshake without actually eating an animal. And that combination is what I would order if the world <laughs> were ending tonight <laughs> and just talking about it I might have to go out and find one and have it tonight even though the world is not ending no <laughs> well it's the problem with this question Kwame is that most people you know many anyway I'd start talking about food and, and right here right now dear listeners half past six in the evening so it's coming up to dinner time uh, and you've just made my stomach rumble talking about burgers and fries and milkshakes I love milkshakes so thank you and thank you for a wonderful hour chatting it's been an absolute joy really fascinating um wonderful time chatting to you and i hope we could you know i might have the meat version i'll let you have your beyond meat version we can meet over a burger and fries <laughs> and carry on chatting another day thank you kwame with pleasure michael it's been it's been really really fun thank you for having me a Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a British conductor, whose career has really grown over the last few years. He studied with Sir Roger Norrington, and has specialised in historically informed performance, while also becoming an expert in conducting orchestras live to film in concert. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>